1: It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL
2: Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft.
4: Do you know where the name Project Mygale, like, can you say what it means? I think it
1: means tarantula, right?
5: That's Michelle, my editor. And we're sitting down at a dinner table with Italian sandwiches, soda cans, and this guy. You asked the right guy this question. He's an investigator, a retired cop of 40 years, who worked on an undercover sting operation called Project Mygale. He asked to be anonymous, so we're disguising his voice with a filter.
6: So, Mygale refers to a family of spiders that build trap doors. Did you ever see on, like, the National Geographic channel? Spiders that make little holes in the ground, and then above them, they weave little sticks and grass together and literally make a trap door, and they wait for a bug to come on,
5: and wham! They fucking nail it. When Project MyGale got started in 2014, it was one of the biggest cross-border police operations in U.S.-Canadian history. It employed hundreds of officers and several law enforcement agencies, including the DEA and Homeland Security. The operation targeted cartel runners, money launderers, and narcotics traffickers on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Duffel bags of cash, Ziplocs full of pills, and bricks of cocaine. Classic bad guy stuff.
6: My gal, I guess we could say, was a trapdoor that bad guys just walked in. What
1: would you say that trapdoor was?
6: The lure of easy money. And these people would just go down that hole.
5: And one of the people who walked right into that trap was an enterprising businessman named Derek White.
0: Forgot I am in, in the fucking car that they fucking pulled over me. They fucking booked it. <laughs> fuck. Yeah, I'm out of here now. Fuck, Cut. fuck.
5: For Campside Media and Dan Patrick Productions, I'm Rajiv Gola, and this is Running Smoke. Episode 2, The Trap Door. When Derek made a deal to take raw tobacco as payment for renting out his race cars... It turned out to be much more than a simple business transaction. Derek had unknowingly stepped right into a gigantic undercover police operation that had been building for months. Police sketched a profile of Derek as a major figure in the criminal organization. But from what I could tell, all he was doing was buying and selling raw tobacco on his Mohawk territory. So you're probably wondering, how the hell did that make him a criminal? Isn't tobacco legal? Answering that question turned out to be more difficult than I anticipated. The problem was, every time we reached out to a law enforcement agency, they told us they couldn't comment on an open case. But after months of calling around, we did find someone who would speak to us. A retired police officer who helped investigate the case against Derek. The same investigator you heard earlier through a voice changer. His name was never revealed in the court proceedings or media reports around Project MyGale. So he asked that we don't reveal his name either. So, we'll call him Jimmy. When I started doing this,
6: I had to have somebody explain to me what illicit tobacco was. And I guess after 10 years of doing this, I've become a subject matter expert. And basically all I focused on was contraband tobacco between the states and Canada, specifically how New York plays into it.
5: Now, on its face, the phrase contraband tobacco doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, well, tobacco is legal just about everywhere in the world. But the difference between regular legal tobacco and illicit or contraband tobacco comes down to taxes. Almost every government in the world taxes tobacco. So if someone manages to sneak tobacco into a country without paying those taxes, well, now that's considered contraband which comes with the criminal charge of defrauding the government. Jimmy's been working as a cop since he was 19. But after he retired about 10 years ago, he started working on contraband tobacco investigations for different law enforcement agencies. He was eager to peel back the curtain on an issue that not a whole lot of people understand. He had packs of smuggled cigarettes and stacks of printed documents laid out on his dinner table for me to flip through. He'd also been up late the previous night working on a PowerPoint presentation just for us.
6: The numbers that I'll get into here with you are just staggering, just staggering the billions of dollars. One thing I want you to know is one pound of tobacco, one pound of raw leaf processed tobacco, or what I call cut rag. You could fit one pound of cut rag tobacco approximately in a one gallon Ziploc bag. No plug meant for Ziploc. (laughs) (laughs) Ziploc, the bag for smugglers. The choice of smugglers around the world. Ziploc, please sponsor us. Okay, so one pound of tobacco makes 500 cigarettes, or roughly two and a half cartons. A tractor trailer holds 34,000 pounds of cut rag tobacco. So here's the problem
5: for Canada. 34,000 pounds of cut rag... Times 500 cigarettes per pound. If you run all the numbers, what you come out with is that a single tractor trailer of contraband tobacco that illegally crosses the Canadian border comes out to around $7.5 million dollars in evaded taxes. And those trucks cross every day. It was a massive logistical accomplishment.
6: I mean, we can't organize a coffee and donut run without an argument for 10 minutes. These people are doing international money laundering. They're, they're transporting contraband for thousands of miles. Tobacco brought a lot of different groups together. Project MyGal exposed that. If you want to bring tobacco, a tractor trailer's worth, up into your facility, you need an organized network to do that. Who better than organized crime? Tobacco is a commodity for organized crime. Whatever they can make money off of, they're going to exploit. It's funding their other businesses. They used to use cash to fund their drug businesses. They used to use cash to fund their human trafficking business, to, to fund their, their gun business. Illicit tobacco has become the new currency for organized crime. They use cigarettes, and it makes my skin crawl.
5: And the thing about organized crime is that it needs someone at the top to organize the crime. In this case, investigators had their eyes on a man named Sylvain Etier. By day, Etier was the owner and operator of a Prohibition themed bar in Montreal's suburbs, called, well, Prohibition. By night, though, he was an alleged associate of the Hell's Angels, managing tobacco transport and money movement among various criminal organizations.
6: Sylvain Etier. Sylvain's function was he was the sort of the the front man, if you will, for, for the organized crime slash Hell's Angels organization that was running these operations, or I should say that was profiting from these operations.
5: Sylvan's operation worked like this. First, he would have his guys wire money to a broker in North Carolina to purchase a load of tobacco, a tractor trailer's worth, which would run you about $80,000. Then, Sylvan's guys would arrange for drivers to go pick up the tobacco with a semi-truck. Undercover police would be staked out at the North Carolina warehouse, writing down license plate numbers of suspicious trucks and sending them to colleagues at the border. But the smugglers were one step ahead. The drivers would stop somewhere in Jersey or New York, unload their tobacco, and swap trailers to throw cops off the trail. Then they would drive on up to the border. This was the most policed part of the tobacco route. Customs agents from both countries would be watching every vehicle going across that line, and they were trained to spot illegal shipments. If the cops were gonna nab one of Sylvain Ettier's trucks, this is where it would happen.
6: They will take those tractor trailers in regular commerce and drive them to a regular border crossing like you or I could cross, like tractor trailers cross each and every single day. And it's welcome to Canada, eh? What do you have in your truck?
5: At that point, the driver will show the border agent paperwork that documents what the truck is carrying. Except that paperwork doesn't say tobacco. It's false, but from
6: legitimate companies like Thomasville Furniture. Everybody knows Thomasville. So the Canadian Border Service guy looks at that paperwork and sees Thomasville. Well, hey, it's a legitimate load, and he'll let them go through. And some of it was pretty ingenious, but some of it was pretty stupid, too. Sometimes we've also seen idiots We're on the bill of lading. They put sawdust, sawdust, going into Canada, the number one producer of lumber in the entire world. You think they got to
5: import fucking sawdust? Ground balls like that were easy to catch for border agents. But truth be told, a lot of trucks full of illicit goods crossed that checkpoint every single day with no problem. You have to remember, these are busy international borders. Agents can't open up and search every single semi-truck that comes through, or the line would be backed up all the way down to Florida. So more often than not, Sylvain Etienne's trucks got into Canada without a hitch. From there, it was smooth sailing to Sylvain's warehouse on the outskirts of Montreal. According to Jimmy, this is where the Hells Angels come in.
6: Now it gets to these warehouses where literally you now have millions of dollars worth of cut rag tobacco stored in your facility. Bad guys steal from bad guys all the time. That's why God invented guns. You need security. Well you can't call up the local police and ask them to guard your contraband now, can you? And that was the tie in with organized crime and Hell's Angels. So the current rate is about 60, fifty to sixty thousand dollars to both smuggle or track the trail load up into Canada and to guard it until it's done. And that number is the cut that the Hells Angels and truck drivers would get for both the smuggling and storage. So it'd be like a smuggling fee, a transportation fee. You break it up how you want. It costs $60,000 to get the stuff from North Carolina into Canada safely and securely. So it's quite profitable just for the, the muscle on the
5: street. Sylvain's operation was massive. It involved brokers, money launderers, outlaw bikers, and truck drivers in two different countries. He'd gotten the entire supply chain down to his science, and the folks involved were making money hand over fist. But as the organization got bigger, it also became more vulnerable. When you have an
6: operation the size and scope of MyGale, with so many loads of cut rag moving back and forth, it is inevitable that one of those loads... Is going to get picked off by Canadian Border Services. Or a tractor trailer is gonna have an accident and the back's gonna open up and tobacco's gonna to spread out everywhere. Stuff is gonna happen.
5: Flukes and freak accidents were one thing. What Sylvain Etier was really worried about though was being infiltrated by cops.
6: When you have cases of this scope and you have players from warehouse employees, to forklift drivers, to brokers, to bankers, to truck drivers, to sled operators, to boat operators, you have a great opportunity to insert and undercover.
5: Coming up after the break.
3: To that your testimony you will give is the, truth. Will but the
5: truth. I do. I do. The tape you're hearing, we got it from the Montreal courthouse after months of wading through forms and files. It's a recording of a testimony from one of Sylvain's key collaborators, a convicted money launderer named Martin Grenier. He was an asset for a guy like Sylvain because he had a skill set that was central to any smuggling operation: money laundering and transport.
3: So, this is a message I received from uh, Etsy. He's asking me if I know well the uh, driver of the truck that brings the tobacco from the U.S. to Canada. I was able to um, move money to, uh, to outside of Canada. And I also had contacts in the transport world ...pour bouger du ...in order to move some tobacco.
5: He was put in charge of running the nuts and bolts of the smuggling operation and making sure things went smoothly. Here he is telling the court about a time that Sylvain sent him a text, asking if he knew why cops were sniffing around the warehouse.
3: The reason he gives me is that after we went to pick up a load of tobacco in Buffalo, three, four weeks after, the police went there. He calls them the labor. So the police went there to verify everything. And then he tells me also that after uh, we dropped the, the load of tobacco at Saint-Rémy, there was four cars, uh, uh watching or following the uh, dirt truck that, uh, dirt truck that picked up the tobacco at Saint-Rémy and to bring it to another destination.
5: Police were swarming at Thierry's drop locations and tailing his trucks, and he was starting to get nervous. ETA wanted to know if the drivers could be working with the cops. Grenier told him not to worry. His guys were legit baddies. They were experienced narcotic smugglers. And so when, when he says
3: that, how do you answer him? So I'm telling him, uh, I don't think the problem is coming from us because my driver is also crossing white, uh, referring to cocaine. So uh, I don't guarantee you that he's not hot mean that he doesn't have police uh, following him. But I confirmed to him that my driver is sitting down at his house. So there's no problem from my side.
5: But all of that was a lie because the man Sylvain Etier was texting was a double agent. Martin Grenier had been working with the cops for years, feeding information back to his handlers on every single money transfer and tobacco shipment. Oh, and the drivers that Sylvain was worried about yeah, they were undercover officers too.
4: Do you know who did the transporting for you? Yeah.
3: Uh, HSI. Uh, so it was HSI.
4: Um, uh, so undercover agents working for Homeland Security in the United States.
6: What Miguel offered was a very unique opportunity to insert undercover agents anywhere along the line from a truck driver to a warehouse operator. It was a very complete and complex operation.
5: Tell me about how you place uh, undercover officers in key positions in, in this trade.
6: You need an informant. You need an informant to vouch for you. You need an informant to say, hey, this guy's buying from me or this guy is looking for a new whatever. And it's an introduction.
5: Fortunately for investigators, they had the perfect person for the job. Martin Grenier.
4: You got arrested in the United
5: States for money laundering, is that right? We think I that's true. And it was um it was as a result of that arrest for money laundering in the US that you started to work for the police. Is that correct? Go ahead. Yes, that's correct. All right. So can you tell us then... Long story short, he worked with criminal organizations for years until he was arrested in 2012 on money laundering charges. Not long after that, he made a deal with the DEA and the Quebec police force. We're unclear on the exact terms of that deal, but beginning in 2014, Martin Grenier was back on the street and put word out that he wanted to work with his old boss again.
0: And how do you know Mr. Uh, Etier? I
3: know him for having uh, done some criminal activities for him over two periods.
5: Back in the day, Grenier had been part of Sylvain Etier's crew. And in 2014, after his arrest, he managed to rejoin the group. For years, Grenier worked as a double agent. Managing the logistics of Etier's tobacco business and feeding all that information back to the cops, Grenier was particularly well placed to get high-level intel on all the wire transfers and semi-trucks. And when an order came in for a load of tobacco heading to a Native territory on the south shore of Montreal, Grenier got a message directly from Sylvain Etier.
4: I received a message from Etier 1059. was asking me if I know
3: someone could transport a, um,
6: from Saint-Rémy,
3: where the warehouse is, to the client.
6: client était, uh, the uh, uh, client being an individual on an Indian reservation. When
5: you said, um, the, uh, um, well, you, you had mentioned where the client was located. Sorry, where was the client located?
3: Donc, uh, sur la réserve indienne.
4: On an Indian reservation on the South Shore. Did, did you know exactly where? No. Did you know
3: the name of the reservation? During a, a meeting face-to-face with Etchie, we talked about the Kawanaki Reserve.
5: And from stage left, from the Ganawage Reserve, enters Derek White. This
6: is Running Smoke. We'll be right back.
3: So at the beginning, we were investigating the uh, Sylvain Etier's organization.
5: What you're hearing is court testimony from a Canadian border officer who worked on Project MyGale.
3: Okay. But A little bit later on, on the, during the investigation, we came to realize that Mr. Wright uh on his own uh, organization also.
5: As it so happened, Paul Jean, the driver that offered Derek tobacco in exchange for renting his race car, Well, he turned out to be a close associate of Sylvain Etier, So when Derek made a deal with Paul Jean for raw tobacco, it meant he was now doing business with Sylvain Etier's organization. Now, to be clear, Paul Jean was never a hell's angel or associated with them in any way. And he denies having any knowledge of Sylvain's associations with any criminal organizations. But the fact is that because Sylvain was already under heavy surveillance, Paul Jean unknowingly roped Derek into the traps set by law enforcement. Derek wasn't the intended target, but now he was impossible to ignore. And according to Jimmy, he played a vital role in the larger operation that Sylvan was running.
6: White's role in this was he was making money and he was using, in my opinion, on what it appears, his native status as sort of like, let's run it through me. Nobody's going to touch the tobacco on the Indian Reservation. And to some extent, he's right more or less, police won't go on the Indian Reservation, certainly not for tobacco. So it's it sort of having somebody like White afforded that, like, home plate, like, just get it here
5: and we'll be safe. Derek was now caught up in the massive surveillance operation that had been wiretapping and tailing Etienne's crew for months. His texts and phone calls were intercepted and disseminated to investigators.
3: So the first communication, 403, Mr. Derek White Texas. Mr. Samuel, Samuel Baker. Baker. Mr. Baker I need I need texting Mr. White. Hey, buddy. Period. In which Mr. Derek White replies the letter K at 10:48 a.m. from Mr. Jason Hill. Let's hear that phone call, please. 133 in the transcript Oh. Hey, so you might have cameras outside your by uh, the restaurant. He's the truck broke down. Hopefully Tuesday or Wednesday. Well, they got to pay It's going to be legal. These are text messages between Mr. Derek White and Samuel Baker. Need the tires. I'll send sponsorship. 8 a.m. Monday, work? Question mark? Yep. Yeah.
5: That last message might sound unrelated and innocuous on its face. Derek is a race car driver. Of course he's buying tires and looking for sponsors. But investigators already knew who Mr. Sam Baker was. One of North Carolina's biggest illicit tobacco brokers. He was the guy buying tobacco from growers and processors in the States and selling it to buyers in Canada or in Mohawk territories. Derek was using code words to speak with Sam Baker, and over the course of the investigation, Derek had sent him over $2 million with memo lines like racing expenses and NASCAR parts. Derek wasn't just a small player in Ettier's game anymore he was running his own operation.
3: So at the beginning, he was uh, doing business with uh, uh, the ETA's organization. Later on, on, uh, in October 2015, so we came came to the realization that uh, he had his own truckers. We'll go to uh, pick up the tobacco
5: from the USA. Turns out, Derek had been buying and selling wholesale tobacco for years before he met Paul Jean. But until then, cops had no idea what he was up to. As soon as he shook hands with Paul Jean, though, cops started paying attention very closely. And they started filling in the picture of Derek's tobacco operation. And from all the intercepted messages, investigators figured out how Derek was wiring his money and handling his logistics.
0: Maybe we could uh, we could boost it up uh, to maybe uh, two a week or three a week or something, you know, for you. This way, they don't
5: bring it to him anymore, and then it's going to make you more, and uh, you know, everybody will be happy. Uh, our circle. Mm. And how he organized for someone to warehouse his product, a guy they codenamed the Old Man. Yeah, yeah, you're all set. And how Derek directed his drivers once the tobacco got into Canada. We need, uh, could you bring the, the, the trailer before Friday so we could uh, load it and then uh, be ready to go uh, Sunday night if you get yeah. There were heavy criminal elements to the larger organization that Project MyGale was investigating. Folks that were even bigger than Sylvain Etier and who were dealing narcotics and hard drugs. But Derek seemed to be totally independent of it. Derek never met Sylvain Ettier, never spoke to him, texted him, or communicated with him at all. From what investigators found, Derek was only dealing with tobacco, and he never had any contact with the rest of the criminal operation. But that didn't matter. Derek was on the MyGale radar, and investigators were on Derek's trail. They had an informant inside his warehouse and undercover officers driving his trucks. Cops knew exactly where every shipment was coming from and where it was going. And even though they could stop every truck at the border, they didn't. They wanted to pounce at the right moment, when they had enough evidence to go after the kingpins. Jimmy, the anonymous investigator, explained the logic to us. So you typically don't
6: want to take off a load if you don't have to. Because imagine going through this multi-year operation like my, and then do something at the end that screws it up, that makes the bad guys say, we're
5: not doing this for two years, we're backing out. But when you've got as many trucks going across the border as Derek and Sylvain did, there's going to be some surprises, no matter what.
6: Stuff is going to happen, and it always sends a a, a wrench in the works when that happens because the first thing the bad guys do is close ranks and go, we have an informant here. The truck could have been hit by a fucking meteorite, and
5: they're going to think they have an informant which is exactly what happened in November 2015. Just a few days after Derek got back from a NASCAR race at Texas Motor Speedway, he got the news that one of his money runners was pinched by the cops. Investigators saw the whole thing unfold from the texts and calls they intercepted from Derek's cell phone.
3: They start at 8.36 a.m. Mr. White writes to Mr. Hill, they jacked my friend. I'll let you know later, don't want to talk too much.
0: I'm in the fucking car that they fucking pulled over me and fucking booked it. <laughs> Fuck. i just bring it to one of the fucking dealers to get rid of it. Yeah, I'm out of here now. Fuck, cut the
5: Fortunately for the cops working this case, Derek got over it quickly and chalked up the arrest to bad luck.
0: Even my lawyer said the same thing. He said it was just a fucking a random thing, a fluke thing. So I don't think there's any... You know, anything fucking checking anything old, so I ain't worried about that. (laughs) But we got another one ready, and I want to send it right away. I gotta fucking, we gotta fucking try to remove
5: this fucking shit. Derek thought he'd gotten off scot-free, but police were biding their time, waiting for the perfect moment to open the trapdoor. Coming up next time on Running Smoke. I thought there was no risk because they told me they're doing it all legal. I took their word for it.
6: The first thing you want him to know is you're screwing your gun in
0: his ear. The peacekeepers called me and they said that uh, we have a warrant for your arrest.
5: So I went and turned myself in. Running Smoke is a production of Campside Media, Dan Patrick Productions, and Workhouse Media. Written and reported by me, Rajiv Gola. Our producers are Aaliyah Papes, Lane Gerbig, and Julie Denishay. Our editors are Michelle Lanz and Emily Martinez. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional sound and mixing by Ewan lai Trimuin. Additional reporting by Susie McCarthy. Our executive producers are Dan Patrick, Josh Dean of Campside Media, Paul Anderson, Nick Panella, and Andrew Greenwood for Workhouse Media. Fact-checking by Mary Mathis, artwork by Polly Adams, and additional thanks to Greg Horn, Johnny Kaufman, Sierra Franco, Elizabeth Van Brocklin,